The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Ah, the good old days. How often have you heard that phrase at a family Thanksgiving dinner, or maybe you've used it yourself recently? Things just used to be different, better, simpler. It can feel like yesterday is always better than today. Like, woe be gone of positive memories. I find these days I hear friends in our business and political community look at today's scene and just lament about the good old days. Well, has it really changed? And if it has, what should we do about it? To talk about this issue and separate nostalgia from practical, I've brought together three active commentators on politics and communications. With me in the studio is Michael Zeldin. He is a TV legal analyst and has been for the last 25 years, offering his insight in watershed moments like the O.J. Simpson murder trial, White Water and the Clinton impeachment proceedings. He's been legal counsel in high-profile positions in Congress and has more than a passing interest in economic trends. Al Stewart is also here. She's CNN political commentator, communications consultant, and communications advisor on numerous presidential campaigns, and she's also an Emmy award-winning journalist. She's very interested and is researching whether the current incivility in our political discourse is an aberration or now the norm. Alice, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Jonathan. And Richard Levick is also here in the studio, the founder of Levick, an international crisis communications and strategy firm with clients around the world. As you know from earlier guest appearances on the show, Richard's an expert on corporate messaging and helps his clients weather social trends and deliver effective messaging. Well, Richard, as always, thanks for being with us also. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, let's let's get after it. Are things different now from, say, the way they were 30 years ago? I will jump in here and say yes. Uh, when we talk about civility in politics and the civil discourse that we have going on, I, I'm often reminded of uh, something that Ronald Reagan said, is that someone that agrees with you 80% of the time is your friend and ally, not a 20% foe. And Unfortunately, people have gotten away from that mindset. They are so single-minded, and this goes on both sides of the aisle. Oftentimes, if they see that you don't agree with them politically, they are automatically going to put you in the faux category without having a conversation. And I'd like to think at some point we can get back to uh, the mindset where let's just agree to disagree and find out there are actually a lot more things to talk about than politics. And that's a, that's a great focus and that's a great goal to have. Uh, I think we're a long way from there, but it, that's that's why I believe we've gotten to this mindset because people think that uh, if you're not on the same page ideolog ideologically, you can't be on the same page. And that's unfortunate. So I agree. I think that really there has been a slow death of civility over the years. I think there are a lot of things that account for it. On, on the Hill, for example, it used to be that members stayed around on weekends. And on weekends, they actually got to speak to one another in social settings, and they got to form friendships, and those friendships carried over to policies. So to Alice's point, they could be 80 percent friends, disagree on 20 percent, but move forward. You saw that you know, historically with Teddy Kennedy and Orrin Hatch good friends who were able to accomplish things together. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Jean Scalia, friends, they could accomplish things together, though they disagreed on some fundamental policy issues. We don't have that anymore. There's a lack of sort of underlying friendship that therefore 
denies them the opportunity to find consensus on policy. So I think it's a problem, yes. And Michael, you know, you're absolutely right. Although we did see some of the undercurrents of the absence of civility, even going back to Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy, as Orrin Hatch is criticized for attending Ted Kennedy's funeral. We started to see it at that time, but it was still on the outskirts. Now, it's the center of our politics. We've really become NASCAR. You know, NASCAR is just traffic, but for the accidents, and now it's accidents all the time. We seem to want that. Hollywood on the Potomac. We've become all about television entertainment. Even this impeachment is the televised impeachment. It's also, I think, at every level. When when we were kids, when we were young adults, we would read columnists, you know, as a, a, a liberal growing up, I would read George Will. I would disagree with him on everything except his baseball columns, but I would read him and realize, I better get my act together. I better know my arguments. And now what we do is we have a cancel culture and just dismiss the other side as opposed to learning from it. Well, and I think that is in some measure a responsibility of the way the media has divided itself up into camps. So when I was a kid, there were three news stations, and I listened to CBS News, and Walter Cronkite told me the way it was, and Eric Severide gave me his commentary at the end. And we all sort of agreed on a basic set of facts, and that drove our decision-making. Now you can't even decide on what the facts are because different camps argue different facts, and therefore we can't even find that agreement. And so it's problematic. There's no I, question. And this goes back to the adage there's three sides to every story there's yours mine and the truth is somewhere in the middle but a lot of people don't want to subscribe to that theory i have a, a story i used to have a radio show it's a political show it was from a conservative standpoint but i welcomed conversations with people across the aisle and i wanted to do a fun segment about food and this was in our in little rock I reached out to some of the local foodies that were huge food bloggers asked them all hey, I'd love to do a segment on food every Friday. One of them outright said, absolutely not. I know who you work for. I know what you stand for. You're against uh, everything I stand for. I would never come on your show. And I said, I'm sorry you feel that way. I would love to just talk about food. And then he got back with me and said, you know, I've done some research on you. I know some of your friends. I apologize. They came on every Friday for the rest of my show, and it was probably – the most enjoyable part of the show because we realized we all totally politically disagree, but we found a common interest and a common topic and developed relationships based on that and put politics on the back burner and talked about something that was actually enjoyable. And it was a really good way to demonstrate to people you can have civil conversations if you actually just put a lot of the, the, the di- disagreements aside and find where we agree, because in the end, we all probably agree on more than we disagree on. I find it's really interesting when we start to talk about this, and it raises to my mind the question is, is the media a mirror of society or is the media media shape society? Is the civility or lack of civility we're talking about, is it media led or is it it led by human behavior? I think a little of both. Mm. I think that human behavior drives media because media has to make a profit, if you will. We're not all NPR, and and so they reflect what is their demographic opportunities, and at the same time, they drive opinion and and thereby create these these camps. So I think there's a little of, of, of both here. I don't see media as the blame or people driving toward a Fox 
network that didn't previously exist. I think there are opportunities, and they each you know rely on one another for support. You know, after Hertz and Farnsworth, with the invention of radio and television waves, we saw that, uh, or we felt as a society, that the airwaves were sacred. They were public. They were limited. And so we had a Federal Communications Commission that would oversee the distribution and the use of this limited resource. Uh, we had a fairness doctrine until the mid-'80s. No more. Not only do we have, as Michael referred, you know, the 500 different television stations all targeting a demographic of about 100 each, but we also have now the airways, if you will, the Internet, is being determined by the FANG, you know, the Facebook and the Apple and the Alphabet, uh, Netflix and Google. A very limited number of companies are determining how we communicate and what's fair. Uh, and as a result, what we're also finding, or in part as a result, to Michael's point, it's both. It's both where politics and media have gone, but it's also where we are. We're not particularly civil with each other. It's said that the meanest place on earth is Twitter. And how we treat each other is only proving what Plato and Socrates said about democracy, that the death of democracy would be too much democracy. We treat each other with anonymity and an absence of appreciation of difference of opinion. And we're looking for, as Alice said earlier, that 20% we disagree with, and then we excoriate. The, the liquid courage of social media is really astounding. The people that get behind uh, their profile of a cat and say outlandish and horrendous things is, is really uh, unfortunate. And it, it has grown simply because people uh, are not held accountable for statements that they make. And often the, the more an anonymity they can claim, the more outrageous their comments are. But with regard to the news media and and how they contribute to this, the reality is journalists, by and large, ones that I have dealt with, whether I was in news or in now in politics, they are out there to present both sides of the story and let the viewers or the readers decide. They are fair and impartial. But the news business, in the end, is a business, and they operate on the law of supply and demand. And if viewers out there want to hear something of a more liberal slant, they will provide that. If viewers want to hear something of a more conservative slant, they will provide that. So you have to realize they're putting out what the people uh, are asking for. And so it's it's really back and forth, uh, whether it's the what came first, the chicken or the egg. People turn in, tune in and turn in to what they want to see. In some ways, going back to Richard's point, it's a democratization of media. People consume what they want to consume. I'm going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I'd like to turn a conversation to what we think some of us uh, in the media here could do about this challenge. So we hear what's working in Washington Extra. We'll be right back. Thanks to Acuity. Acuity is a leading technology innovator solving big data analytics problems. Check them out today and discover the power of Acuity. And thanks as always to our sponsors. If you want to join them and help support one of the leading programs in the region pointing out the positivity that defines us, please communicate us directly on Twitter at, at What's Working DC.
here with Michael Zeldin, a TV legal analyst, Alice Stewart, who is a political commentator, Richard Levick, founder of Levick. Let's now turn our attention to, well, we clearly agree there's an issue here. What shall we recommend that folks do about it? Richard, I'll, I'll turn to you. We were having a little sidebar in the break. What are you thinking? Well, you know, Alice, just before the break, Alice, you said media is giving people what they want. And I think this question is ultimately as easy to separate as uh, iced tea and the sugar after you've already mixed them. They're so interrelated. The thing that concerns me about this, in the internet, you know, this invention by Al Gore is um, where where are we going? When we sit down to the keyboard, I think right now we wonder, well, you know, am I in control or is the computer in control? And uh, as the folks over at Turbine Labs who do a lot of analysis on this say, the, the, the race is already over. The logarithms in the internet already help us. They not only know what we want to buy, they're helping us decide that. They're in, increasingly in control. And it's very hard, I think, for us to separate ourselves from these machines that are omnipresent. Some rules, I think when we get on the internet, we ought to treat it like the sidewalk, not the highway. When we're on the sidewalk and someone accidentally steps in front of us, we don't flash them the bird or we don't yell and scream at them. We say, excuse me, we're in the highway, we feel we're anonymous and we honk and we tailgate and we treat them with extraordinary rudeness and sometimes danger. If we start to think of ourselves as a community, as a civil society, as a voluntary one where we all voluntarily stop at the stop signs for a well-ordered society and treat each other on the Internet as we would with an in-person conversation, we'll take a huge step towards civility. So I think that's a great um, way of approaching it, but I have a little bit different way of doing it, which is I'm not on the Internet. I have decided that it's not a man it's not a medium for adult communication so i don't tweet i don't instagram i don't do any of those things i have a legacy facebook page which i post particular songs that i like to listen to um, but no politics no discourse what i find is that the internet isn't as upsetting to me because i'm not present on it i don't have to listen to the trolls and i don't have to you know, suffer the, the slings and arrows um, that is present. And I sometimes think that if only people would take a step back from using that as a adult communication vehicle, maybe we could return a little bit closer to the civility that Alice and I long for. I'm concerned most importantly right now that Richard may have seen me driving in this morning and describing me as I was driving down the interstate, but that's another story. Well, I thought I was going to say you were in a bird scooter on the sidewalk. <laughs> Either one, as right. we concerned, I might change my behavior now moving forward. But look, I am on the internet. I, I, I do Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm really not hip on a lot of the, the new younger generation um, places on the internet, but it's part of my business. I need to get on there. But what I have found is that whether I have written an op-ed or whether I've done a television appearance and people go on Twitter, I, you can generally tell when you get a lot of feedback, they're complaining about something. But oftentimes, if, if it's someone that uh, is credible and they're giving a constructive response or constructive criticism on a point that I've made and I engage with them, we often come to the idea that, okay, I disagree with you, but I see where you're coming from. I appreciate the feedback. So I look at it as an opportunity to engage with people. I never expect to change anyone's mind, but at least engage in the conversation, because if we don't do that, we're certainly not going to, to take any steps towards civility. 
there are the others that have the cat profiles that are just profane that I just ignore. But you have to get to the point to where you engage with those that seem to want to have a conversation and the others you just tune it out. You think we might get um, largely where we want to get to if we just made it that nobody could be anonymous on the web? I think that would help. I think that when you are accountable for yourself in a public domain, then you think longer and harder about what you're going to say. I think anonymity is a wonderful way for people to behave badly. And um, it would be nice if that was a possibility, but I don't think it's a possibility, which is, again, why I don't participate in it, because I don't like the prospect of being anonymously uh, trolled by people who need a life. You know, it's in, <laughs> in uh, Stephen Covey's seminal book, Seven Habits, he talked about our personal and professional trust banks. And when our trust banks are high, we can hear things from people, whether it's shorthand or limited communications, and we interpret it in a safe and uh, effective way. I don't know if Michael really meant to say it X, uh, but this is what I'm hearing because I know Michael, high trust bank. And we used to operate with high trust banks. Now we operate with extremely low trust banks. So we're looking for the ism in everything, the homophobia, the racism, the sexism, whatever it is, the 20% that we can disagree with. And we feel somehow that we're hyper-ethical if we call people out. And what it's really resulting in is prior restraint. It's, it's a new form of prohibition. When people are attacked on the internet, even if the mob only represents 5 or 10%, the bullying wins because others who are fair-minded are afraid to get in. Here's the prior restraint. They're afraid to be, uh, be allied because they know that they too will be attacked. The number of people we have either represented or had in our office who have been falsely accused, and you look in their eyes and you realize off the record, people will tell you, I'll stand up for you, but I'm afraid to go on the internet. And facts, whether it's independent law firms or board minutes or whatever it is that can show the proof of the point are dismissed as just so much hyperbole. You know, I'm listening to this, and I've never thought this before, and, I, and I've been prior shows been really hard on the tech uh, economy. It's democratized everything. I'm thinking as we're having this conversation, the real issue here is people are putting up with this. This may be a situation where literally we are reflecting when enabling bad behavior, and this really won't stop until people get disgusted with it. The problem is so much of our society now is focused around social media. What we have Many times with whether we're talking about social media or if you're frustrated with the way you were treated at, at a restaurant, you're going to have the silent majority and the vocal minority. The people that are in the minority oftentimes are the most vocal about being critical, being condescending, being negative. And those are the people that get on social media and say hateful and hurtful things. And that's that's where you have to just tune it out. Some people obviously choose uh, Michael's plan of just avoiding it altogether, but there are places you can go and people you can engage with that are your way of saying, I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore, but you just have to know the right places to go. And I view a lot of the communication I get from people and we have this conversation, look, I'm not as concerned with what your true north is, but that you have one. And if you want to be consistent in that and that is your core value and your conviction, I respect that. 
and hopefully you'll do the same with me, and that's where you have civil conversations. That's what citizens should do, frankly. We've got a little bit of time left, a minute or so. If I made you each dictator for a day and you had all this power, what would you do to change the situation? Well, I think your point about uh, removing the anonymity, but remembering we're all in a community and we're all neighbors, let us start uh, treating each other that way, we'll be, I think, a much better society. Well, I think that exactly is what I was going to say. It does, you know, sort of take a village in a sense, and it takes people to behave as if they live in a village. And in the anonymity that the internet allows for, I don't think it actually is the democratization of, of communication. I think it is a tyranny of communication because people are not accountable. If you think about the town square in days of old, people showed up at the time square in the town square. They weren't hooded or anonymous. They stood there and they argued their point and people argued about it. That was what the First Amendment was uh, about. It wasn't about anonymous trolling of people. And so I'm very concerned about the, this exact point of anonymity in the, in the communication vehicle that allows for an end of civility. A couple things come to mind with regard to the Senate trial last week. Chief Justice John Roberts pointed out to those on the Senate floor, stop your pedophaging, which is being petty and underhanded, and let's work together, respect where you are. And I think we can take that across this country as well, stop being petty and underhanded. But more importantly, what I'm going to take away from what we have heard on the Senate floor is what the Senate chaplain said to start off one of the days last week where he said, there are patriots on both sides of the aisle in this room. And that is true across the country. We just have to realize there are patriots all across this country. We all may be on different sides, but at the end of the day, we're all Americans. We all have a common goal and common interests, and let's have a more mutual respect for that concept. Well, I said it better myself, Alice. Thanks for summing up today's show. This was a really interesting conversation. Folks, I think the big message I'd like all of you to take away is if you're unhappy with the lack of civility, be polite. <laughs> let's start there. Richard Levick, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. you Michael Zeldin, it was great to meet you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. And Alice Stewart, thanks for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. And now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. We have had 10-plus years of economic growth and strong rebounds in the stock market. Interest rates are still low, consumer spending is still relatively strong, and demand overall appears to be sustainable, even through certain rocky cycles. But our economy, as you know, goes in cycles, and a downturn at some point is inevitable. It may be 2020. It may be 2021 after the elections. It might even stretch out as late as 2022, but you know it's coming. So what can or should you do to prepare your business to be ready? Let's go through a couple of items. One, right-sizing your staff levels. Make sure your teams are just the right size to keep pace with consumer needs and demand, even if there's adjustments downward. Number two, keep a close watch on inventory levels and inventory turn. Many companies get caught by surprise by a downturn and are left with a lot of inventory on hand, which will have a negative effect on your cash flow. Number three, Strengthen your consumer loyalty now, before the recession hits. Even your most loyal customers will become fickle 
and more open to change if a downturn comes. So invest in these relationships now. Number four, get your banking and credit lines in place. Lending standards, which are already a little tight, can shift quickly downward into a downturn, and most banks are already risk-adverse. It will only get more difficult if we face a recession or economic downturn. Over the last 100 years, sometimes we've had V-shaped recessions, which happen quickly and begin to recover, but there's also the possibility of a U-shaped recession, which tends to drag along the bottom for longer and extended periods of time. We'll probably never experience, or I hope we never experience, a 20-plus year recession like Japan did, but we have to be ready for both types of recessions. One final tip. In making staff adjustments, be careful to cut fat, but not muscle or bone needed to keep the foundation of your business strong. Swinging the pendulum too far can destroy your competitive advantage, and it'll be nearly impossible to rebuild when things do recover. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Thanks to Acuity. Acuity is a leading technology innovator solving big data analytics problems. Check them out today and discover the power of Acuity. And thanks as always to our sponsors. If you want to join them and help support one of the leading programs in the region pointing out the positivity that defines us, please communicate us directly on Twitter at, at What's Working DC. We're in our fourth year here at What's Working in Washington, and I and my producer Tracy Madigan are consistently reminded of the reason why we started the show. We believed then, and we're sure now, that there are millions of people who get up every day in the greater Washington region and don't spend their time arguing about what the problem is. They actually go off and solve problems, whether it's in social venturing, not-for-profits, non-government operations, government, and entrepreneurial businesses and larger companies. People get up every day to make things happen. And that's what the show is about. 300, 400 episodes strong. We tell the stories that other people should tell, and maybe they don't. But you listen to our podcast, make sure you tell your friends what you're hearing and what's working in Washington, because together we can push the narrative that D.C. is a place where things happen and people come here to change things for the better, and they do. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout out to Marymount University School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 